This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're focusing on politics this hour. Later in the program, University of Minnesota political science professor Larry Jacobs will be here to talk about his new book about former President Trump. But first, we will continue our Meet the Candidate series with one of the Republicans seeking the party endorsement to run against Governor Tim Walls. The Republican State Convention is coming up in about three weeks, and it's a high-stakes event because the 2,200 delegates meeting in Rochester will pick a candidate to oppose the DFL governor in November. There are more than a half dozen candidates competing for the GOP nod, and so far it doesn't look like anybody has a lock on the endorsement. Joining me now is one of those uh, candidates, Rich Stanick. He was Hennepin County Sheriff for 12 years. Before that, he was Minnesota's Public Safety Commissioner under Governor Tim Pawlenty and a state representative from 1995 to 2003. He was also a Minneapolis police officer for 20 years. Rich Stanick, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on your show this afternoon. Well, first of all, uh, let me ask you, uh, you had a car crash last week. Are, Are you doing okay? Yeah, thank you. I did. I had a uh, a pretty bad car crash last uh, Tuesday after uh, some campaign events out in Buffalo, Minnesota. But I am uh, doing my best to uh, heal up and get back out there. Well, I hope uh, I hope you're doing well and I hope you feel okay. Uh, But let's uh, get to the main point. Why do you want to be governor? You know, I think there are things that are really important to uh, hardworking Minnesotans. Uh, You know, I was born and raised here in the Minneapolis metropolitan area. I look at public safety. I look at electability and certainly taxes in the economy are what affect all of our hardworking Minnesotans. Uh, I think I have the best chance to, uh, to do that and take on Tim Walls in November representing the Republican Party. Well, with your background in law enforcement, I'm assuming public safety is, is probably the biggest issue for you, if not the cornerstone of your campaign. Uh, what would Governor Stanick do to cut down on violent crime? You know, clearly public safety is job one for uh, local government, state government, and it should be prioritized that way. Tim Walls has not prioritized it that way. Everybody recalls just a short 20 plus months ago, the iconic images of Minneapolis burning, uh, stores looted, uh, buildings being burned down, people being hurt. Uh, we were on the national news for something that should have never went you know, that far because of the inaction. I think under uh, a Governor Stanick, uh, what it would look like is using my 38 years of public safety experience to leverage prosecutors, police, the judges to come together to work towards some common interests and goals to both reducing violent crime, uh, not allowing repeat offenders back on the streets to victimize again, and to provide the resources to the men and women who serve in law enforcement that they so desperately need and deserve from our elected officials. Mm -hmm. Well, you talked about the aftermath of uh, George Floyd's killing, Um, but the the Minneapolis Police Department uh, has had its own problems. Of course, Floyd was killed by a police officer. Um, City taxpayers have paid tens of millions of dollars. Uh, is that any part of your uh, campaign? How do you, are you the right person to address both crime on the one side and keeping police officers in line on the other side? No, absolutely. You know, I mean, I served as a local police officer. I served the governor as his commissioner of public safety in the governor's cabinet. 
and I've been elected by the people of Hennepin County, 1.3 million re- residents to represent them in this role. I ran an agency of 1,100 personnel. Uh, if we had to fire police officers, they were fired. They were disciplined. Um, look, nobody likes uh, police officers who uh, betray that public trust more than another police officer. I also had a chance to chair the Minnesota Peace Officer Standards and Training Board, what we call POST, back from 1990 to 1995. So I've had a career both of public service, but also accountability and integrity. Those are the things that we we stand for. I think Minnesota could do much better. Uh, but first and foremost, you've got to stop the nasty rhetoric from elected officials about the police themselves. Uh, defunding the police, the failed a democratic experiment of defunding police in Minneapolis uh, was tragic in and of itself. Luckily, it was voted down about 60 to 40 percent. But nonetheless, all that did was embolden criminals, the bad guys, to do even more than what they do uh, today. I was just looking in the paper at an 84-year-old woman out in Stillwater who was leaving, uh, coming back to her car after a funeral service. She gets in her car And there's a man who she does not know in her back seat who says, drive me to Minneapolis. It's a carjacking, 84-year-old woman in Stillwater, Minnesota. And she doesn't drive him to Minneapolis. Rather, she drives to her home close by. He bangs her upside the head, takes her car, and leaves. We can do so much better, so much better than that. Uh, What's the governor's role in fixing that? And and when you say we can do better, what does the governor do? What what does Governor Stanek do to fix that? You know, I think the governor and Governor Stanek in particular will prioritize public safety where it belongs. We'll provide both the resources in terms of funding and also the uh, the support to the men and women who serve in law enforcement, helping the local cities, uh, not standing by and watching this happen and then blaming others for uh, those tragedies, but rather getting engaged. If that means hiring bonuses for police officers or additional funding in order to retain current police officers while also holding them accountable through the post board and other sources. But but it's really about it's really about at the end of the day, Mike, uh, providing that support to law enforcement. I don't I don't for faintest idea how you would expect Minneapolis police officers to go to work every day. For a 13-member city council that has disowned them and doesn't like them to begin with, why would you go to work every day for somebody like that? That's about the morale of the agency itself. And again, we can do so much better. Hiring and recruiting across Minnesota is at an all-time low. It's really hard to convince a young man or woman to go into law enforcement today, given all that's happened over the last couple of years. But it is a worthy profession. It is a profession that we need. We are a civil society, and you need police in a civil society. Simple as that. Well, why didn't you get the endorsement from the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association? That went to Paul Gazelka, another Republican in the race. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, the MPPOA is a political entity. They're eight- or nine-member board of uh, local uh, elected uh, union presidents, uh, traditionally endorse uh, Democratic governors. They endorsed Mark Dayton. They endorsed Tim Walls. And so they didn't ask the rank and file police officers across Minnesota who they wished to be their endorsed candidate for governor, but rather they left it up to this eight or nine member political board to choose. And they so chose. 
uh, I'm okay with that. I don't have to rely on others to tell me after 38 years of experience in public safety to know which way to go and how to get this done. I've been doing it for 38 years. Let's uh, talk about some other issues. A lot of uh, Republicans have been critical of the emergency orders Governor Walls used during the pandemic. Would you ever use emergency orders if you were governor? You know, I think uh, emergency powers have a proper role with the governor, but not 15 times, 30 days at a crack, and then having the legislature say, well, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do about it. I served as commissioner of public safety for Governor Tim Pawlenty for a couple of years. There were several times where we had to issue uh, executive orders in order to provide assistance to towns or communities for natural or man-made disasters to get them the relief that they need. That is proper, uh, but it is limited in, in duration. And then, you know, there was no problem with going back to the legislature and asking for their concurrence, either calling a special session uh, requiring some percentage of the legislature to agree. It does. It should never be a partisan issue when Minnesotans are in need and need help. Uh, so, so you would keep the powers in law largely as they are, but just be more judicious about their use. Is that is that what you're saying? I would. I, I'm in favor of keeping executive powers for a governor, but uh, going back to the Minnesota legislature who are elected by the people themselves, all 201 of them, and asking for their concurrence uh, for those executive powers, right? Not just doing it unilaterally, going to a four-member board, which are made up of four members of his own political party, and saying, well, that was enough. Go back to the legislature. They elected the people to represent them on behalf of hardworking Minnesotans, 201 of them. That is the right place to have that check and balance on that emergency powers. State has a big surplus, nine and a quarter billion dollars right now. Let's say the surplus is still there uh, next January when the new governor takes office. What would you do with it? Well, Mike, I think it's uh, wishful thinking, and your listeners will probably <laughs> agree that uh, nine and a quarter billion dollars is still going to be sitting there. That Tim Walls isn't going to spend it beforehand. Well, he's got to get uh, a deal, though, was... right? Got to get a deal with the well, legislature. He's, he's got to get a deal. But it's, it's wishful thinking to think that that money is still going to be sitting there come uh, November. Having said that, though, um, nine and a quarter billion dollars, what is essentially 17 um, percent of our biennial state budget. Um, I think that we could do a couple of things with it. One, uh, it's, it's well, absolutely has to go back to the hardworking people of Minnesota. Uh, it can come back in some form of direct rebate. And I don't like this gimmick of a walls checks, uh, but it should come back through uh, tax breaks, tax incentives. I know the legislature has already taken significant action on uh, not taxing Social Security benefits. Uh, whatever they decide to do with it, it needs to go back to the people of Minnesota, not not reinvesting it where it goes into the biennial budget um, as part of the base budget itself. And then next year, you've got to make up even more in order to get to that amount. That's the wrong way to go. Give it back. So would you would you cut taxes permanently? Yeah, Mike, I would I would cut taxes permanently. I'd look at uh, I'd look at property tax relief. I'd look at gas tax. I'd look at an eight plus percent 
um, inflation that we've had here in Minnesota. Uh, I give relief to the hardworking men and women across Minnesota. What about state government spending? Where where would you like to cut spending? You know, I think uh, probably all the governor candidates ask, answer this the same way. You know, give us a chance. I ran an agency of 1,100 people. I ran an agency with a $140-plus million budget, uh, but my budget was not unlimited. And if the county board said, hey, uh, we've got to reduce your budget by 8% or 6% or 10%, we made those reductions. So give me a chance to look at state government in totality, and I'll figure out where to make those reductions with my cabinet, who will be reflective of the people of Minnesota themselves. Was the 2020 presidential election fair? Was it stolen from Donald Trump, like the former president says? You know, I think rightfully so. Uh, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. We always respect the office. I don't know what happened back in 2020. I was neither in elected office uh, or running for governor at the time. Uh, I was just like uh, the other five and a half million Minnesotans watching this unfold. I think we can do better in terms of election integrity here in Minnesota. Uh, You already talked about my former law enforcement career. I spent 20 plus years as a detective. I know where to find uh, the bodies and how to dig them up and figure out what happened. And we will continue to do so as we reform the election system here in Minnesota first and foremost, so that we have fair and safe elections moving forward. So how about some specifics? What what would you do to improve election integrity? Well, first, I think you have to have voter ID um, at the polls themselves. People that come in to vote uh, provide some identification about whom they are. Um, Secondly, I would consider provisional ballots, ballots that are challenged by poll watchers or election judges, Uh, that those ballots are counted but put off to the side. So if there is a challenge to the election itself or the integrity, you can provide some uh, direct line of accountability. Third, I think you got to take a look at the mail and ballot system that we currently use. Is it best serving the people of Minnesota and what we're trying to accomplish in terms of election integrity? Those are three right off the bat. Okay. Uh, Where do you come down on social issues or what uh, some people are calling the culture war? A lot of Republican governors around the country, you know, Florida, trying to prevent schools from talking about sex in the early grades and gay and transgender issues. Um, Do you support that kind of move? Would you follow suit uh, what some other Republican governors are doing around the country? I think I'd take a look at the entire uh, country, Mike, in terms of what other governors are doing. Could be, uh, could be Republican, may even be Democratic, right? It doesn't mean because they belong to one party that they don't have good ideas, but you've got to find things that fit for Minnesotans themselves. As far as schools, look, we should have school choice here. The money should follow the student, not the other way around. I remember back in the time when I was born and raised in Minneapolis, I went to Minneapolis schools. Uh, we had a great education system. Now today, not so much. Uh, the achievement gap is achievement gap is greater today than it ever was before. We need to get back uh, to being proud of Minnesota's education system. Throwing money at the problem in and of itself is not going to fix the problem. 
Would you significantly restrict abortion, especially if the Supreme Court rules this uh, summer to uh, overturn Roe versus Wade? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I've been, as you mentioned before, I'm a five-term state legislator. Uh, while serving in the legislature, I was endorsed every year uh, by the pro-life groups. I think you know where I stand on that. I will continue to support uh, life, uh, continue to support individuals who make uh, choices and help educate them about options that are available to them. I think parents absolutely have a right to understand what is happening with their minor children um, and give them an opportunity to be well-informed. I know that all the Republicans have said they're going to abide by the endorsement at the convention next month. Uh, is there any circumstance that you could foresee under which you would run in a primary, say, if there, if there wasn't an endorsement? Um. You know, Mike, I think you're right. I mean, all of us have said that we would abide by the Republican endorsement. Um, you're also right uh, when you started out the radio show this afternoon by saying, you know, it is a crowded field, eight of us. Um, it doesn't look that anybody has this uh, locked up by any means. So I think it's going to be a big battle on May 14th. Uh, hopefully we will find a candidate that will resonate with those delegates on behalf of the Republican Party and uh, move forward. But for now, uh, I, along with the others, are focused on the endorsing convention of May 14th. Anybody out there you see as your biggest competition? Tim Walls. Tim <laughs> Walls is my biggest competition, right? I'm looking forward to November. Doesn't mean I'm skipping over anything in between. But I think it's ridiculous to continue fighting or arguing with the other candidates. We all kind of look alike at the end of the day in terms of the things we say and how we do it. I mean, I've been endorsed nine times as a Republican. Uh, so there's not any time soon that I'm going to be changing the way that I think or the principles and priorities I believe in. But I've also been elected eight times. That's something none of the other candidates bring to the table including being elected three times countywide in the third and fifth congressional districts. So electability is going to be an absolute issue in this election come November against Tim Walls. He knows it. I know it. And the other candidates know it. Rich Stanick, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Great to be here with you and your listeners. That's Rich Stanick, former Hennepin County Sheriff and current Republican candidate for governor. Now, speaking of Governor Tim Walz, he'll be back at the Minnesota Capitol in the House chamber Sunday evening to deliver his annual State of the State address to a joint meeting of the House and Senate. It's the first time in three years Walls will deliver the speech at the Capitol. He hasn't spent much time there for a while, in part because of the pandemic and in part because of a concerted push to take his message on the road. Reporter Brian Bax tells us that Walls has been trying to fly above the everyday back and forth at the Capitol and that his return is likely to send a message. One, two, three. Governor Walls stood in the middle of a line of leaders this week hoisting shovels of dirt to mark a major milestone in the lane expansion of Highway 14. He told those at the ceremonial groundbreaking in tiny Portland 
that it was a long time coming. It is great to be here. It's always great to be here on a good news day and uh, seeing a lot of old friends here. As Greg said, um, literally there are people in this crowd who have worked on Highway 14 for decades. In March, it was Walls sizing up a 911 call center in Stillwater that he hailed as a model for responsiveness. He's held roundtables to talk paid family leave and child care. Walls has been to schools, too. Do you care if we finish reading this book? Yes. Yeah. We came just for that. Could somebody but he's read to kindergarten classes, looked in on preschool programs, and thanks staff for extra efforts during a trying two years. As Minnesota Lutherans, we know if you do a good deed and talk about it, it doesn't count, so we don't say anything. <laughs> so we're out here to talk about the good deeds you're doing. Walls is well-traveled in the fourth year of his term, months before he'll face voters in pursuit of a second term. He's made dozens of stops from the suburbs to cities across greater Minnesota. The sites are carefully scouted and the attendees largely predetermined. Every now and then, critics get a word in. Don't forget, he locked you up! That's what a man shouted at Walls last month when the governor went to a gas station to promote his proposal for tax rebate checks as an antidote to rising prices. It was a clear reference to the now-lapsed COVID-19 restrictions. Walls paused briefly. That we did what? (laughs) Then moved forward with his uh, remarks. Public safety, infrastructure upgrades, and the tax rebate plan are the topics Walls is hitting most on the road. Republican House Minority Leader Kirk Doubt has taken note. When he's out there on the PR campaign, he's he's sounding a lot like a Republican in this election year uh, because that's the flavor of what the electorate wants. Doubt says it's getting to be session crunch time and the governor will have to start hunkering down at the Capitol just like lawmakers. My advice to Governor Walls would be get engaged in the legislative process. Um, we're only here for another five weeks, I think, uh, and and this is his opportunity to, to really shape what the legislature passes. If he sits on the sidelines um, and doesn't play an active role, uh, it's probably not likely we're going to get a lot done. DFL House Speaker Melissa Hortman says Walls has both put forward proposals and been involved in early negotiations. The governor is fully engaged and will remain fully engaged. Abu Amara used to work as a legislative leadership aide and has also advised Democratic campaigns. He says Walls appears to be trying to strike a balance. The big picture is not necessarily the day-to-day things happening at the Capitol, although that matters. But it's really to make sure Minnesotans understand what he's been trying to do on behalf of them. I don't think he's avoiding the Capitol. I just think he's taking his message to Minnesotans as opposed to having conversations just in the Capitol itself. But Amara likes that Walls is holding this State of the State speech in the traditional setting after two years of delivering them via video feed. Symbols matter, and the governor giving the State of the State in the Capitol again is a symbol to Minnesotans that we've returned to a sense of normalcy. In his first address in April 2019, Tonight gathering together... For the first time, all of us together. Walls delivered an idealistic recitation of how he and a politically split legislature could jointly proceed. I know for certain that we're not here to have petty arguments against one another. I'm absolutely certain we're not here to send out mean tweets towards one another. And I know, and I think this is especially true of our new members, we're not here to be actors in a story that is already written for us. There have been plenty of pointed tweets and arguments in the years since, but not even Walls could have predicted the choppy waters he and the state would encounter. Just how well Walls has navigated those waters will be debated by his opponents and decided by voters over the months ahead. With reporting from Hannah Yang, I'm Brian Baxt, NPR News, 
at the Capitol. And you can hear Governor Walls deliver his State of the State speech live right here on NPR News at 6 o'clock Sunday night. We've aired those speeches live from every governor, going back as far as I can remember, no matter where they deliver them. Stay with us. We're going to check in with uh, University of Minnesota political science professor Larry Jacobs about his new book, Democracy Under Fire. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Seems like every other week there's a new book out about former President Donald Trump. Often they're tell-alls about how Trump ran his administration or how other Republican leaders reacted to him behind the scenes. Larry Jacobs, political science professor at the University of Minnesota, has taken a different approach. He has written a new book that looks at the historical forces in U.S. politics that led up to Trump's election in 2016. And spoiler alert, he thinks there are some big problems in the system. Jacobs' book is called Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. Larry Jacobs, Lawrence R. Jacobs, if you're looking for the book online, Larry Jacobs joins me now. And Larry, I know you had to juggle your schedule to do it, so thanks for coming on. Always good to be with you, Michael. And let me just uh, tell folks listening, if you have a question for Professor Jacobs, give us a call. The number is 651-227-6000, 651-227-6000. And I think it's fair to say, Larry Jacobs, you're not a big fan of the former president. You know, I, I think the former president is um, a marker. And I think the further we go into our history, more and more people will see it that way because historians are going to tell, I think, almost entirely a story about someone who came into office hostile to the Constitution, who had doubts about the rule of law, whose attitudes and behavior was, you know, unprecedented in our history. Um, and that's what's going to stand out because the historians look at, at documents. They look at, you know, what happened. And so the emotions around Donald Trump, that's going to fade with time. But the reality, and this is really where my book starts, is that in 2015 when Donald Trump announced his presidency, um, coming down the, the escalator as his uh, tower in New York, um, you saw pretty much all the major Republican leaders – in Washington and, and many of the governors, including uh, Governor uh, Tim Pawlenty, come out and say that um, Donald Trump was unfit to be president. And that view continued uh, during a 2016 campaign. And the striking thing was Donald Trump won the primaries. He was the nominee. There was nothing that the Republican Party leaders could do to stop his nomination. And that raises the question. What are our checks? What are the filters in our system with regards to the nomination of candidates who are hostile to our Constitution and to the rule of law? This has been a concern throughout our history. Hmm. Um, and if you think back on the Democratic side to George Wallace's very successful campaign as a white supremacist in 1972 that was cut short by an assassin's bullet, um, you know, that, there's another example – we see plenty of these sort of um, candidates that are hostile to our Constitution, rule of law, who are running in the 2022 uh, midterm uh, primaries. So that's my concern. What has happened to the tradition and the history in America where we were concerned about um, filtering out um, demagogues 
and those who would threaten um, our political system. That system is gone. Hmm. And and just to be clear, you consider Trump and uh, people who are promoting some of the things he says or promotes a real threat to democracy, right? Absolutely. I mean, when you have an election, 2020 election, that has been certified by uh, election officials around the country, where you have more than 90 judges, including many who were nominated by Republicans and some nominated by Donald Trump, who review that and agree uh, that that certification was legitimate and proper. And then the former president, um, you know, campaigns and, and encourages and cites uh, the January 6th riots and, is con- and continues to make these outlandish, ungrounded charges. Um, you know, just in the last uh, 24 hours, we've had the release of recordings um, of the Republican House leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, um, and the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, in which they say that they've had it with this guy, uh, that he is just uh, so out of uh, step with our constitutional rule of law, it's time for him to go. Hmm. And yet they back down. Why? Well, they back down because they heard from their colleagues who are tuned to the party activists and the interests who are so influential in the primary elections. They're the ones who are dominating um, politics in America today. And I th- there's certainly a threat to our country and, in my view, a dire threat to our democracy. Talking with uh, Lawrence Jacobs, professor of uh, political science at the University of Minnesota, he has a new book called Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. And if you have a question, you can get it in. Give us a call, 651-227-6000, 651-227-6000. Well, it seems like you hear uh, reporters all the time say, uh, you know, behind the scenes, Republicans are telling me that, that they're they're fed up with Trump. You know, just what we've seen in the past 24 hours. Um, but they don't say it publicly. Why not? What are wh- why are they uh, afraid to come out against Trump? You know, we have a system that was adopted in the early 1970s for nominating candidates. It's the primaries, and we're we're seeing them now. Um, there are going to be some next week, and then they'll be accelerating. Um, and that determines who's going to be on the ticket for each party. Well, who are those people? Well, they represent a fairly small segment of our electorate. Um, you know, during the carnival of presidential elections, when there's so much attention, even then it's only a quarter or a third of Democrats and Republicans who turn out and participate. In midterm elections, like this year, it's about half that. In the really significant elections over the last decade or so, uh, such as the Tea Party's um, nomination and, in some cases, defeat, of more moderate Republicans. The turnout in those elections was 12-15%. AOC's uh, primary win over a prominent um, Democrat who was on track to become the next Speaker of the House. The turnout in that election in, in New York, 12%. So it's very small. And then who are those people? Well, they tend to be the purists. They tend to be the folks who are most um, you know, committed to ideological agendas. Um, on on the on the left and especially on the right, um, and that's why you see Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy coming out initially and saying, you know, Donald Trump incited the January sixth riot, but then he 
they hear from um, their members who are so sensitive, you know, like deer in the woods, to what the party activists who are going to be uh, controlling the nomination process, what they're saying, and they're saying, we love Trump. And that remains the case. Trump most likely will have a good shot at being renominated in 2024, and there's nothing to stop it. He runs in the primaries, and he wins. He will be the Republican nominee. That system, in my view, has got real problems. We need to be looking at a system that is unresponsive to most Americans um, and and a threat because it opens the door to demagogues. Well, it's interesting because when you um, talk to people about Minnesota's precinct caucus system, uh, they often, you know, critics will complain that so few people show up and it would be much more democratic to have a primary. You're saying, I mean, your basic argument here is that primaries are undemocratic. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look around, you know, the other the other democratic countries, you see the political party playing a role. Only in America do we have this this process of primary elections. There are primaries in other countries, but they're, they don't carry as, as much influence or any influence in the way that, that we use them. Um, and why is that? Well, because the parties have fundamental interest in winning the general election. And so their motivation, the, their incentives are to select candidates who can win over, you know, the independents, those voters who are wavering. And that, that introduces, a, you know, more moderation, more of a concern with kind of the centrist opinion. Well, we've got in America with the primary elections that were adopted in the early 1970s is a system that invites radicalism and demagoguery. Weren't the, the, the presidential primaries uh, enacted, as you said, back in the 70s in an effort to, to get the nomination process out of those smoke-filled rooms or the, you know, the closed-door back rooms with the party bosses? How did it go wrong? Well, you know, that, that is, I think, the dominant view um, of what was going on in 72. And I spent a lot of time digging into that. It is true when the idea of a primary election was first introduced which was a century ago. You had Tammany Hall politicians. You had um, machine politics. Uh, But when you look at the 1960s Democratic Party, which was the focal point of these initial reforms, you know, this was the party that had passed civil rights legislation, um, Voting Rights Act, fair housing. They were the ones who who had uh, enacted uh, Medicare and Medicaid legislation and more and more. Um, And all those pieces of legislation ran up against um, powerful, entrenched interests, and the party was was certainly vibrant enough to to look past that and respond to what was really a majoritarian preferences at that time. There were other reforms that could have been pursued and and uh, were on the table, including um, you know, really pushing in a new generation of Democratic Party leaders who would be people of color, who would be younger, who would be women. And that could have happened without what was essentially um, a, an attack on political parties. I think that was a mistake, and I think we're paying for it now. Lawrence Jacobs, author of Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump, and the Breaking of American History. Uh, let's take a caller. Mike is on the line from Omaha. Mike, hi, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Professor. Thank you for taking uh, my call. 
Uh, the question I have is just, uh, it, you know, it seems like our political uh, system now rewards kind of taking extreme positions uh, rather than dialogue and compromise. And, and so, um, you know, the lobbying and, um, and the question I have is just how, how is it, what solutions do you, do you suggest in terms of restoring integrity back into the system where, because I think democracy is based on the free exchange of ideas and initial respect and trust uh, for that dialogue. So be interested to hear what you have to say there. Thank you very much. I think the number one thing is we have to look at the incentive structure that we have, you know, perhaps inadvertently created. We've created a structure that rewards the kind of extremism, the, um, the, the disinterest in dialogue and compromise. To pursue that today is to invite um, uh, defeat or to invite a very costly primary battle. And, um, the idea of dissenting from a position in your party, it could well be your last decision in elected office. So here are a few ideas that, that, that I've charted, and I've, I go through a whole list of them, um, many of which I think are excellent for uh, sound bites, but will not happen. And so I'm not in the let's do this for the soundbite. I'm really into the practical. What can we do? Um, and I think the number one thing is we have to focus, as did James Madison all those years ago, on how we restrain the political elite. They are out of control. They are a problem. And I think one thing we can do is to reintroduce um, uh, peer review. And what I mean by peer review is when you're going through a nomination process, it shouldn't just be the, the party activists, the ideologues, who have such a disproportionate uh, influence on who the nominee is. It's also important to get party leaders and elected officials into that process much more so than they are now. And we, we have that, but it's been diminished and weakened. In the Democratic Party, they're known as superdelegates. Republican Party, they're known as unelected or unpledged uh, delegates. And... You know, there, there's th those who are running in the system, like Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, hate those because it diminishes or threatens to diminish uh, the power of their backers. And I think that's a good thing to do. I think we ought to be having the folks who are concerned about winning general elections and appealing to that center point, who are appealing to people who want to see compromise, to see their voice. And so I would make a pitch for let's Let's increase the proportion of superdelegates and unpledged delegates. The other part is we need to take much more seriously the rules and procedures of our elections. We tend to take them for granted, and I think, frankly, it's been, it's been complacency in America. One of the things we've started here at the Humphrey School is a program to train election administrators. And it's really in the last year, I think, people have realized, hey, wait a second, those you know, nameless folks who are putting, in some cases, their lives in the line to run elections fairly by the law um, are, are critical. They are, 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 are workers of democracy here in the country. We need to build them up. The other side of this is voters. Uh, we see turnout as low as it is. It's a sign that voters are just absolutely spent. They are fatigued. And... Um, you know, writing this book, we tried to get a count of how many 
municipal, local, state, federal uh, offices face elections. And we kind of lost track of after half a million. Half a million elections. Hmm. That's way too many. And a lot of these are, you know, elections where hardly anyone is showing up. Hmm. Um, and they were adopted because they were seen as this is the voice of the people. And that, that is just a terrible myth. That's, so I would diminish the number of elections in a very substantial way, focus on the really decisive, important elections, and let voters kind of build up their energy and capacity so they can participate robustly and meaningful in those. Uh, let, let me just push back a little bit because it seems like you're laying a, a, a lot of the uh, problems at the feet of the political system, the primary system. But, I mean, hasn't politics been dominated almost by social media recently? I mean, Donald Trump was sort of the Twitter president, and now we have all kinds of celebrity politicians whose celebrity comes from the outrageous things they say on on Twitter and Facebook, and for whatever reason, the algor- algorithms of those uh, social media sites seem to reward them. The more outrageous you are, the more attention you get. Absolutely, and I think that that and money and and other issues are certainly big problems. But if you walk this back and you look at the chronology, what you see is that the primary system comes into being. It then allows this very individually oriented uh, kind of campaign in which those who are more radical are more apt to win the nomination. That then attracts interest groups to those people and advocates. It then opens up the sphere of communications, including social um, social media. In other countries that have nominations controlled by the political party, they certainly have social media, but it's not as influential as it is in America, where it is the deciding factor. Um, in some of these elections, because the media, social media and, and money, is looking to influence a tiny number of party activists to to drive the nomination. So, yes, these are problems, but they're, they're symptoms of a system that's created incentives for this kind of um, uh, roughhousing, political roughhousing that we've, that we've now created. Let's uh, let's hear from another caller. Clyde is on the line from Aiken. Hi, Clyde. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. I'll try to be brief, and I'll, I'll try to speak quickly so that you can get my point. We have to make service, and I'm talking about the politicians that run for office, not military. We have to make service in this country uh, attractive to a different breed of person. We have to get rid of the dark money completely. We have to get rid of lobbyists completely. We have to have term limits. So that when you come to office, if you get elected, you take that oath seriously, and that's it. You shouldn't be allowed to even own any stock, so that when you serve this country, you are a plain-Jane person stripped of all the prestige and power and money that attracts so many people. And then we would get a breed of person that would be more altruistic, more virtue than vice, and honesty, 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 and get rid of all these things that attract people to these offices, so that we can get a, a class of people in there that take promoting the general welfare of this country seriously and all these laws and all these loopholes that cause these people to do end runs around all of these things that we know they're guilty of. It's just absurd. And I don't understand why we don't change these paradigms so that people will take politicians serious. Okay. Thanks for the call. Larry Jacobs, response? 
uh, Clyde, I, I think you're 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 on the right direction. I mean, obviously there are constitutional provisions that you have to walk work through. But let me mention when primaries were first introduced about a century ago, you had uh, advocates for them, and including uh, Robert La Follette, who came from Wisconsin um, and was a real kind of fighter um, for uh, the primary and other sort of changes. But there were also a number of progressive uh, reformers who were forcefully opposed to the primary system. People like Robert Crowley and Walter Littman and many local and state reformers. And as they saw the primaries being introduced, the very words that they used um, are those that Clyde used, that, that it attracted people who were uh, consumed by their own personal agenda, by their own you know, kind of sense of um, of how to improve and advance themselves, rather than this broader general interest. Um, and for you know, decades, primaries were stopped um, in part because of these reformers who could see where we were heading, including the role of money and factions and ideologues. All that was anticipated a century ago, and it was you know, basically ground to a halt, uh, with the exception of the South. It was ground to a halt uh, up until the 19, 1970, when George McGovern um, decided that primaries were a great way for him to advance his presidential campaign. And that's, frankly, where a lot of the problems started. Let's, uh, our time is running a little short. Let's take one more call. David from Wilmer. Yes, thank you for taking my call. And I, I share the same concerns as Professor about Donald Trump. So the question is, do you have any advice on how uh, people who uh, oppose uh, Trump and who support him can have a sane and civil conversation about Trump? Thank you. Well, Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, I think, number one, Republicans who have doubts about Donald Trump need to show up at the caucuses and primaries. Um, and what we're seeing is that those uh, very important uh, nomination uh, forums have become cleared out of the more moderate uh, Republican voices. So I think that's one. But I think the bigger message is we have got to start a reform movement that looks at primaries and abolishes the idea that primaries are democratic. They are not democratic. They are a source of unresponsiveness, of, of radicalism, um, and inequality. Uh, because some have voice and many don't. So I think that's the long-term solution. We have to find a way in which our primary system is not a threat to our democracy, in which we have some kind of check on the emergence of these ideologues. Um, And folks, if you look at who's on the ticket in the primaries this year, there's a whole lot running for Secretary of State and, and other offices. So we've got a real dire issue here, and I think we've got to take it seriously. How much hope do you have that things can or will change? I always have hope in America. I'm not one of these folks saying the sky is falling. I think we've got some big problems. We've got to solve them. Um, I made, you know, I think our election administration system is remarkable. Um, I think these people are unsung heroes, and I think we have to do more to bolster them. I think our judicial system worked remarkably well uh, during the pressure of the of the appeals of the 2020 elections, um, and I think voters. I mean, we we saw record turnout. <laughs> People really uh, saw the issues and 
and turned out. But we need we need a lot more, and I think we need to do some hard thinking because we have lazy talk about democracy, and I think we need to look at what are the actual rules and procedures. But you say that if Trump uh, gets the nomination in 24, I mean, you think he'll do it if he runs again? I think Donald Trump is running for the nomination. I mean, he's certainly got more money. He's got an organization. He's talking about it. So, yeah, he's in. Um, you know, there are plenty of Republican um, you know, strategists and, and folks in office who think Donald Trump would, would hurt the ticket in 2024. Um, but Donald Trump is not listening to them, and he's raising a lot of money, and he's exercising a lot of influence uh, uh, right now. And he seems very popular among Republicans. Exactly. He's, re- he's popular particularly among the primary voting uh, crowd. And those are the people who have so much influence, even though they're proportionally a very small number. Larry Jacobs, thanks so much for coming on today. Good to be with you. The book is Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History by Lawrence R. Jacobs. And that's our Friday program. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Our producers this week were Jessica Bari and Maya Beckstrom. Jeff Jones was here, too, helping out. Our technical director is Johnny Vince Evans. Just a reminder, we will be back on Sunday for the Governor's State of the State, 6 p.m. Tune in if you can. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Support comes from The Walker, celebrating multidisciplinary art for more than 80 years. Focusing on the visual, performing, and media arts, The Walker is a catalyst for the artists of our time. For museum hours and gallery admission, visit walkerart.org. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live, tune in each Friday at noon. I'll be talking about what's happening at the legislature, the 2022 elections, and other things.